are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. I can't express how excited I am just to see everybody. Like Jill, I'm sorry, I'm going to call y'all out. Just going to let y'all know. Just, so you just get ready because you're going to get called out. Just that's going to happen. All right, so we got Jill and Jesse here. And just seeing y'all makes me so incredibly excited. Like this is Jill and Jesse's first time being with us ever, right? Like they're a part of our community. But like last time we went through one outdoor service like this. And Jill and Jesse weren't able to make that one. So it's, it's cool that we're still really so new, right, and barely getting started that there's some of us here right, that have barely gotten to be with us just one time. And and now there are people that haven't even gotten to be with us that time, but are getting to join us now. Like, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to go ahead and shout out the Donaldsons because it's what it is, y'all. Y'all chose to come. That's not my fault. All right. Whitney and Jason, shout out to them. These are friends of ours from years ago, from years back, right, just meeting Jason at uh, Starbucks. And so it's so, oh, and then Laura, I forget you. I forget you. But I'm going to move forward because I know you don't like the spotlight because I love you. I'm going to go ahead and move on. Right, um, but just being able to, and then Chelsea in the back. Sorry, all right, all right, sorry. I just wanted to get, get excited one last time before I jumped into the scriptures. Um, it's just exciting uh, to be able to come together as a body uh, and, and worship God, right? Like, like, think about it. Many of us have formed a community around the idea that the gospel has impacted us and has caused us to, to come to God and to come alive, yet this is only the second time that that community has gotten together to actually sing the praises of that God. Like, that's an amazing thing. And so today, I'm really excited just to be together, all right? And, and in fact, like, can we just, like, I don't know. Before we jump in, I, I just want to take a second to gather it in. All right, to, to gather it in. Because we're all together, but it's still easy to get the cars kind of fluctuating the, the attention. And, and it's easy to kind of still be absent-minded regarding just how incredibly special this is. And so what I want to do is I want to take a second. I don't even want us to necessarily corporately pray. I just want us to be quiet for a second. I just want us to take 10 seconds 15 seconds maybe to just focus on this gathering so like take a second during this 15 seconds look around think about God think about what he's done think about how he's brought you together with other believers uh, and just just consider that for one second just go ahead and take that time All right, all right, so this deep breaths, and now let's get in. Now let's go. All right, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through the season of Lent, all right? Now, how many of us know what Lent is by a show of hands? All right, that's like a, a pretty good chunk. All right, so Lent really is this time of preparation 40 days prior to Resurrection Sunday, a.k.a. Easter, And so we use this time to reflect upon uh, the realities of uh, the world, the realities of God. And it really is meant to be a time that prepares our hearts to celebrate as we get close to this time of really like like celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. 
And so through the next few weeks, we've picked out a handful of themes that we believe are true realities that that we live through every single day, but oftentimes don't even really understand or deeply consider, right, the reality of them. And so it's kind of easy to just sleepwalk through them. We're going to cover some of those through the next few weeks as we prepare our hearts to consider how the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Jesus, impacts those, those parts of our life. And today we're going to talk about something that I think is really crucial to everybody in here, right? It's the idea of identity. It's the idea of identity. Now, let me ask y'all, and I want some feedback here. Usually I got to talk to a lens, so I'm going to get all the feedback I can while I'm here. Um, How many of us consider, like, like, how would you define identity? Anybody, feel free to just shout it out. Your job? All right, so that was a good one. Your job, a lot of people feel that way. Their identity comes from their job. Anybody else? You're a reflection of someone? Of something. Okay, so a reflection of something. Uh, all right, that's a good one. All right, let's get like one more. How would you define identity? Values? Values, okay. So the values we live by, the job that we have, uh, the things that we reflect, all of those are great great responses. And here's the thing, they're all for the most part true, right? Meaning we all kind of derive identity from all those things. I I, I had this other, um, but hold on, before I go there, I want to emphasize one thing, which is that we derive identity from all those things. Consider what I'm saying there, that we derive identity from all those things. Uh, My daughter, she was the one yelling yay randomly when everyone else was quiet. Um, she has this really funny thing that she does. You know, she's a young woman, and uh, she has light skin, but she does have dark hair. And so, you know, being that I I can't tell whether she's going to be very easily perceived as Latina or not, I tend to do this thing where I just tell her that she can be anything that she wants to be. I try to just pour into her and tell her that she's strong, that she's smart, uh, that she can do anything she wants to, that she uh, really has no ceiling but only has a floor, that she's amazing, that she's fantastic. And I go through all of these uh, adjectives, I know grammar, adjectives, and at the end of it, she'll look at me and simply go, nah, I'm Leah. No, I'm Leah. There was this cute phase where she was going, no, I'm daughter. No, I'm your daughter. I'm daddy daughter. But now she's moved on to say, no, I'm Leah. And I don't know really where her mind is in that moment. I'm not going to lie. What I do know is that it made me think about how often I wrestle with this idea of hearing all of the realities and the truths about who I am and how I was created and what I was created for. But oftentimes just stop, pause and say, no, 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 I'm Josh. And, and as Josh, I have a job. And as Josh, I have values. And as Josh, I do this well. And as Josh, I do that well. And as Josh, I'm actually more like this. And as Josh, I'm... And every single little layer that I start to build in each one of those little layers, I start to try to derive a little bit of identity from each one of these. Anybody that knows me knows that the sound of the music that just crossed by, a.k.a. like some legitimately Mexican music, I love it. Why? Because there's a part of me that honestly, honest to God, loves being Mexican. I I oftentimes derive a sense of identity from it. And while not all of those things can be bad, what tends to happen 
is we begin to lean into these derived identities that over time, no matter what we do, where we go, how hard we try, inevitably begin to, to kind of shake underneath us. Today, what I want to do is I want to consider with us the original identity that we had. The original design of who we were meant to be, who you were meant to be. That throughout all of your life, all of these little areas that we have all tried to derive value and dignity and, and identity from, out of all of those, there was a specific identity that God created and designed all of humanity to hold to that is meant to be the core identity by which all the other identities are brought together and make sense, yet so often it's easy to lose. And so to do that, as Eileen read a little bit ago, we're going to take a look at Psalm 8. We're going to take a look at a couple of points from Psalm 8, and we're going to just spend some time thinking about them, all right? Psalm 8 starts out by simply saying, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty from the mouths of infants nursing babies. Uh, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, I read that to kind of, not to get it out of the way, but to set the context, right? Really, it's laying out God's glory, but it's laying out God's glory so that it could tell us about this idea of identity. Right? It's laying out this idea of God's beauty, his power, his majesty, his strength, so that it can tell us about our identity. And here's the deal. What I want us to get out of this is that from here, what we're going to see is that peace, right, true peace, comes with wrestling uh, through our real identity. Hear me again, that true peace, true peace comes through wrestling with uh, our real identity. Right after this, uh, it goes into the first thing that I want you to consider, which is the design of identity. Right after it lays out God's glory, okay, Psalm 8 is going to show us the design of identity, what identity was always meant to be. In verse 3, check this out. He says, when I observe your heavens, uh, the work of your fingers, of uh, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him a son of man that you look after him. You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen as well as the animals in the wild. Now I'm gonna pause there for a second because I think that, that we get the point. The design that God originally has right, for, for, for humanity is this identity of being a governor, being a ruler. You've probably heard the image of God. How many of us have heard that phrase, the image of God? All right, so that's like three of, no, I'm just playing. Most of y'all put your hands up. It was this idea that we were made in God's image in order to rule in God's place, right? Oftentimes in the ancient world, when a, when a conquering king took over a city or a territory, they would erect a statue of themselves in the middle of the city to establish that this king was the ruler. Because in most times, like in, in most instances, the king had to move on and keep conquering. But they wanted to make sure that everyone knew this king ruled over this land. So they put his image in the center of the city. 
And likewise, when God creates everything, this big, beautiful creation, he creates a unique creation and sets it at the center and says, now this is my image. This is my image meant to reflect my goodness and to rule over this creation, which is mine, though I may not always be uh, like physically present in it, these individuals, this creation is meant to rule in my place. And here's the deal. This would have been like a crazy thought. It's easy for us to read this right now and be like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I've heard this idea before. But here's the thing. If you were an ancient reader of this text, this would have been like super sideways, right? Because this was written in an area called Mesopotamia. Now, everybody say it with me. Vocabulary word for the day, Mesopotamia. Ah, that wasn't good enough. Y'all going to give me some feedback today. All right. On three, Mesopotamia. One, two, three. That was a little better, but I'm going to let it slide until the next vocab word. Then I'm going to request a little bit more from you. All right. Mesopotamia had its own origin stories. An origin story that centered around the gods that they worshipped, making creation, making the world for themselves. And when they made the world for themselves, they got tired because they were constantly having to work the world as well. And as a result... They made human beings, human beings that would tend to the land for them and would serve them so that the gods wouldn't have to kind of could wash their hands of having to tend to the creation that they made, but it was still theirs. So this inverse thought, when you got to the Israelites, the people of God, that, that God actually created the world with human beings. Like, look around real quick. Us. All right, to, to rule in God's place. This is what I'm talking about, because this is a little hard. I got up at 8.30 today, and I was in charge. I was supposed to be in charge of ruling and reigning over the... Guys, I, I'm not going to lie. I thought I, was, I should go to sleep at 11. And at 11, I watched an hour and a half of YouTube videos. This is the guy. These are the people that were made to reign and to reflect God's goodness in his creation. Isn't that crazy? That's how the Mesopotamians would have seen it too. They would have looked and said, what, is, what are you talking about? Like we're meant to be servants. We're meant to be humble and lowly and, and really kind of the side story when, when the Israelites come and they say, no, God made humanity, you, and me in order to be his governor and his representative in all of creation and to spread God's goodness in every act. I'm not saying that all we would have done was worn suits and been like ambassadors to, to the world. No, we would have lived life just like we're doing right now. But, but the, all, the idea was always that we would be so closely aligned with God's heart and fellowship with him that we would reflect him in every moment and in every day of our lives, making a creation, helping build a creation that perfectly reflects God's goodness, his love, his mercy, his peace. That's what we were designed for. That's what you were designed for. But let's pause there. Let's pause there for one minute. Because let's be real. Zach, is that how you live life? My man is honest. You see that? He was like, no. No. What about you, Coop? Negative? Lex? Negative. 
Can I be honest? I do. I do. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't. That's not our experience with the world. We don't walk through the world with this deep sense of, of connection to God that then kind of spills over to a perfect life lived, perfect stewardship of our family, our job, our friends, our, our school, our everything, every aspect of life to where people walk around and they go, man, you know what? Josh, Josh really reminds me, Josh really reminds me of, of God. Josh, that dude, actually, I'm going to switch it up. Jermaine, I was looking at you, brother, I'm sorry. And I got to interact with everybody today, I'm not going to lie. Um, Jermaine, every single aspect of his life just smells like the goodness of God to the point that every single thing that he does draws me closer to this God. This natural state where I'm, I'm called by God and, and, and made by God to just reflect his goodness. In fact, if I'm being honest, I don't have that experience with myself and my identity. If anything, I kind of have closer to the experience of the Mesopotamians. If anything, I don't live my life with this sense of honor and beauty and, and value and dignity based on this idea that God had made me and set me in place as his ambassador. If anything, oftentimes the way I walk through life is believing I was created to prove myself in some way, created to work in some fashion in order to build this sense of, of value. Because think about what the Mesopotamians went through, right? In their lives, there was no, there was no, dignity inbuilt. It was just dignity that had to be built. There was no dignity already given. There was dignity that had to be earned. Because if they were just slaves and servants of the gods that had created them, the only way they had value was when they did a sufficient job serving that god. That's how they built identity. If one was a beggar on the street, he probably did have little, he had little to contribute to the affairs of the God in that place. If one was uh, merely asking for handouts, she probably didn't contribute uh, to the work that the Mesopotamian foreign gods wanted to do in that area. They, they had to work to earn that sense of dignity and value. And if I'm being honest, that, that, that's kind of more the life that I lived. More so than being this, this man, this human being that was created by God, that was given gifts, but was given gifts only in order to use them to reflect God's goodness because I had no need to really build myself up because all of my affection, all of my acceptance was already found in this God. I more so walk through my life questioning whether I'm doing a good enough job at school or doing a good enough job at work or doing a good enough job in my family or doing a good enough job at church or doing a good enough job in my community. And from that space is where I begin to derive whether I'm valuable or I'm not. It seems to be that my identity in the world that I live in right now is more based on what I do than who I am. Because who I am seems to only come from what I do. Does that make sense? And the reason for that, friends, is, is not the design of identity. Identity was not designed to be like that. That happens as a result of the fall of identity. 
You see, when, when Psalm 8 makes this description of people being made in, in this governor-like role, this image of God, it's working backwards and taking language from Genesis chapter 2. Probably all have heard of Genesis. You probably, a lot of you probably heard this story, right? That God makes creation, then he makes humans, and he makes humans in his image to rule over the world. But, but it's in that condition that, that the whole design is perfect. Right, everything is like, like I's are dotted, T's are crossed, the whole thing is beautiful. Yet, in Genesis chapter 3, there, there's this moment where the enemy of humanity's souls enters into the garden and just says, hey, did God really say not to do this? Or did God really say not to do that? You see, if, if you just do this, he knows that if you eat, then you'll be like him. AKA, if you just do then your value can get exponentially higher. If you just act, if you take the fruit, where you think you are and who you think you are will go up so much that you won't just be a reflection of God, you will be like God himself. And in a moment, humanity's heart on a whole is plunged deep into the lie that what we do dictates whether we can be approved of, loved, accepted, cared for. Like, hear me for a second. How many of y'all, I, I know I'm not the only one that feels like this. Because let me be 100% honest with you. I'm walking pretty good right now. But a lot of you guys know that I have, a, uh, I have an underlying bout with the gout consistently going just all the time. If you don't know what gout is, it's a form of arthritis where uh, certain types of acid are actually, uh, they can build up if you're doing things like eating the wrong things and not drinking enough water um, or drinking too much alcohol, which that was not the cause. All right. um, and they build up in your joints and it causes pain. And so last week during like snowpocalypse, I went to my mom's house and all my mom had was red meat, which is one of the triggers of gout. In addition, she didn't have no water and being dehydrated is another trigger for gout. So it was just a gout fest, all right? It was just setting myself up to, to have gout. And so sure enough, red meat 58 times during that week, no water. This week, I woke up Monday, my foot was on fire. It was on fire. It was excruciatingly painful, and it got increasingly worse until Wednesday. I, I had to look at my wife and just say, like, man, I got I to gotta prop this up. And so we propped it up until that night we had community group. No, Thursday night we had community group with the guys. So I came here, and I hung out with the guys just in that courtyard on the other side. Uh, and then Friday, it was so bad that from morning to night, I had to just rest my foot on top of some pillows and get it above my head to, to decrease the swelling. And can I be 100% with you? Every single one of those moments where my foot was propped up, I watched my wife feed the dogs. I watched my wife take out the trash. I watched her take care of our kids. By the way, shout out, you're amazing. Number, but I mean, I watched her do every single one of these things and everything inside of me started feeling anxious, started feeling angry, started feeling frustrated because I started saying things like she's doing the things that I should be doing. And I, I should be taking out 
the garbage. We have two kids. I usually put at least one down. I should put one of the kids down. I should be uh, uh, changing one of these diapers. I should be. And every single one of those I should be's took a sledgehammer that, actually, I take that back. It was more like a chisel. A chisel that just gently but consistently just chiseled away at this idea of who I am. And I began to make these jokes with Rachel, be like, I'm not worth anything. I'm a deadbeat. I, used to, I was just making these little jokes just to try to make this, this funny thing. But, but in reality, and then, you know, eventually Rachel starts joking back. She's like, you're right. You, you are good for nothing. You're not, I don't know why I married you. If I'd have known you had gout, right? <laughs> making little jokes like that. And, and while she's kidding, right, what she may or may not, uh, or may not or may have known was that each one of these jokes really did, like from my own heart, not hers, but mine, were these reflections of this decreasing dignity, this decreasing value that I had because who I perceived myself to be in strength and in consistency and in being like a, a good dad and in being all these things was just slowly getting chiseled away. You see, who I had defined myself as was not who I am or what I was created to be, but rather was everything that I do. And the moment I couldn't do the things that I believed I'm called or should do, then all of a sudden, all of the dignity and value that I had built up in my own mind was lost. You see this oftentimes in professional sports players. I remember a few years ago, um, the media went afire because Michael Jordan put out an article really describing how lost he felt. That the greatest basketball player of all time, the moment I said it, I kind of felt like I'm going to get a little feedback for this one. Sure enough, but it's like a couple of But in my opinion, but in my opinion, and most opinions, the greatest basketball player of all time, that he had reached the heights of his skills. But when it was over, and there was no more basketballs to dribble, there was no more shots to take, there was no more championships to win, my man felt empty inside. Now, I don't know if Michael Jordan built his identity on being a basketball player as much as Michael Jordan probably built his identity on being a winner, being somebody that achieves, being somebody that does well, being somebody that could play basketball but could just as easily go and play professional baseball, maybe not as good, but could easily go over and play professional baseball. Really probably could have done whatever else he wanted. But in the split moment, when he hung up the shoes and put the basketball away and there was nothing left to achieve, the man in the mirror was the only thing that was left because there was no more championships that were gonna come and no more rings that were gonna get earned. And the man in the mirror, that was going to be the person that he had to go to sleep with every night. That was going to be the person he had to wake up to every morning. And for whatever reason, Michael Jordan couldn't really stomach that. I'm curious about you and about me, right? Like, 
what in my life if I got, just got stripped away, if it was refuge of preaching or if it was your job or, or, or your friends or what in our worlds do we look at and do we invest so much attention, affection in that we begin to say, that's who I am. And if in one moment it was taken away, how would you see yourself after that? Who would you be after that? Would the person you go to sleep being at night and the person you look at in the mirror in the morning, would that person be someone that you looked at with a sense of assurance about, with a sense of affection for? Or would that person be someone that you, you don't really like and that you wish had more? So what's the solution, right? What's the solution? Because we're talking about this original identity, right? We're talking about this thing where, where the author of the Psalm, David, looks back and says, look at, look at how God originally made and designed humanity. And then we wrestle with this rude and, and really harsh reality of who we tend to be now. What's the solution? Is the solution that if you just killed it at everything, your whole life, that you would eventually be all right? If your name's Michael Jordan, maybe. But I got to tell you, Father Time catches up to everybody, and that's not going to be everyone all the time. So, so what is the solution? Well, that's where the beauty of this verse and this entire chapter really comes out. Because it's not just talking about the past, it's talking about the future. You see, Psalm 8 isn't just talking about the, the humanity that was and was lost, but it's talking about the humanity that will, will come and is to come. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says, For he, God, has not subjected the eight, says, for he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But someone somewhere has testified, what is man? And, and think about these words. These are the words we just read. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subject, uh, subjected to him, but we do see Jesus. Made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. Crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. You see, Psalm 8 is not just about the humanity that was or even about the broken humanity and identity that is, but it's also about the humanity that was to come when Jesus left the glory of heaven and stepped into the brokenness of man to be the man that we could not be, to be the woman that we could not be, to be the human that we could not be. You see, while we had been designed to wear a crown of life, we exchanged it for a crown of death. And while Jesus was born and earned a crown of life, he exchanged it for a crown of thorns. 
And in a moment on the cross where Jesus pays for the penalties of every single one of our mistakes, he also opens the door for each and every one of us to be reunited with a God who desires nothing more than for you to not see yourself as what you do, but to see yourself as whose you are. That's why everything you hear us talk about is centered around this idea of Jesus and him being the greater version of everything that we could be. Because it was Jesus who actually earned the title of being God's, not just created in, uh, as God's only, not created, but not only being brought into the world as God's only begotten son in the flesh, but in addition to that, earning the, the place of life in the community and family and, and faith of, of God, yet lays it down where we have failed every time so that we who have continuously failed right, could now be found in him, could now be accepted the way he had only earned. Every aspect of our identity is something that was marred and fractured in the fall, but also marred and fractured by the mistakes and the, the incidences of our own hands. Yet when we look at the text time and time again, the, the, the New Testament does exactly what it does in this instance. It takes whatever was in the Old Testament and begins to rework it and say, this actually testified to the goodness of what was to come, but a goodness that we couldn't get. Right, think about this text. I just want you to think about this for one second. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? Can I be honest with you? That's not the words that are used in Psalm, two, in Psalm 8. You made him lower than the angels for a short time. And then after that, you crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. I want you to see a couple of things, and then we're going to finish up. The author of Psalm 2 wrote those ideas, but he didn't write those exact words. It was the followers of Jesus that begin to sift through every word that, came that comes before the book of Matthew and begin to see how every single one of these words was actually pointing to something that was far greater than what, there was, what was understood in the moment that it was written. In other words, they begin to see how every single thing actually pointed to this greater thing that was coming in Jesus, and they begin to even rework, hey, I think scripture was talking about how Jesus is the actual, actual humanity that's coming and, and, and how Jesus is actually going to receive this crown of life and subject everything to himself. It, it is this action of taking every single moment of failure and beginning to redefine it, helping us see that it was never meant to show us who we are, but was actually always meant to point us to who he is. Psalm 8 is a great reference point to see how beautiful humanity was meant to be, but then also to mourn everything that humanity ceases to be today. But when put into the melting pot of God's goodness in the person of Jesus dying so that we would not have to die, even Psalm 8 that was meant to be a reference point for us to see uh, the... the, the disappointment in the design and in the lived out 
portion of humanity now becomes a reference point to the glory and the beauty of what Jesus has done to make humanity and design right. Friends, it's the redemption of identity. And likewise, in our lives, the beauty of, of this idea is that when you look back over the course of your entire life and you see the moments that fell short, the moments that were mistakes, the moments that you feel uh, uh, were, had consequences that were unprecedented, that, that you feel you could never bounce back from, in the melting pot of God's goodness and Jesus' grace, they are now meant to not be what you look back and define who you are by, but rather to point you to the goodness of the one who took your place so that you could now be his. Let's go, Jenna. I appreciate that. I was thinking about letting it go, but I got to reinforce it so that we all get there. All right. Right. That, that's what the mistakes of our lives now become. They become fuel in the heart of one who longs to follow the perfect one that now point us to how Jesus is sufficiently above and beyond every failure that we've had and that now no longer dictate who we are, but rather show us the beauty of what Jesus has done to make us his. Friends, you, you, you're not what you've done. You're what Jesus has done. your mistakes and your failures and his faithfulness. That's who you are. And the same acceptance and love and, and, and closeness and, and care that, that God the Father has lived out all of eternity welcoming and loving Jesus with is now the same love, the same affection that God greets you and I with no longer marred in our image, no longer distorted, no longer a failure, but now a follower. That's who we are. But can I be honest with you, me saying this and, and hopefully it making sense to you in some way isn't enough. Because here's the thing, when we say amen, and you go back out, and you live your life, you will go walk step after step trying to tell yourself this is true, but the thing is, the moment you fail, you're going to be like, now I messed it all up again. There's a practice to this, and that's what I want to encourage you to do from here. Okay, I, what I want to encourage you to do as the primary application point of this entire talk, sermon, whatever, is I want you to go back and I want you to reflect on the moments of your life that seem to have fallen short. I want you to reflect on the moments of your life that have seemed to be a failure. I want you to reflect on those moments and rather than run from them, rather than push them to the side and try to act like they didn't matter or justify them in some way, rather than trying to confront them and, and see how they decrease your value and dignity. I want them to point you back to how Jesus has sufficiently lived out that thing. I want you to wrestle not with your own inability. I want you to wrestle with God's overwhelming ability in Jesus. 
Oftentimes it seems like we don't need a lot of help and encouragement to go deal with how we suck. Oftentimes it seems like what's much harder is is exercising the humility necessary to go and wrestle with how good God has been. In the person of Jesus living the life that I couldn't live. To restore the image and identity that I had let go, but I've now been given back. Through no work on my own. So that's what I want to encourage you to do this whole week. Um, let's go ahead and pray. What we're going to do is I want to invite us to respond to worship. Josh is going to sing. And then what we're going to do is I'm going to come back up after that and lead us through a moment of communion. And we'll talk about that when I get back up here. Uh, but I just want you to keep that in mind as we pray. Uh, begin to think about, again, God's goodness. Wrestle with your own moments of failure, but also wrestle with God's mercy and grace in the midst of that. And we'll come back and kind of tackle another layer of that in a second. But pray with me. Father, thank you so much for um, your goodness and your grace. Um, thank you that even now, right, like, even in my own heart, Father, I think so many things that I try to fill my mind with to tell me who I am with a stupid iPhone. I just look down and I feel like things on my hands and my wrists things that I wear, things that I do, every single little thing that the foolishness of my heart seeks after. And I know that I'm not alone in saying that, yet I, I wrestle with this great reality that when I was lost, as I oftentimes still am, you entered into the brokenness that I live in so that you could walk the steps that I walk perfectly, graciously, humbly, faithfully, lovingly, compassionately, strongly, everything and every aspect of who I desire to be, Father, is you. And despite the fact that you lived it, you gave it up so that when I have failed countless times again and again, I've been received by you as a son as a child running to the arms of his father. Thank you for that, Father. I ask that those words that I didn't intend to speak about myself would resonate in the hearts of us here, knowing that they're not true of Josh alone, but they're true of everyone who places their faith in Jesus. I love you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.